You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. While you're finding your place, I feel that it is my responsibility to give a public service announcement this morning to all those who have went out and purchased Mother's Day gifts this past week, that you still have time just in case that gift fits anything on this list I'm about to share with you. You still have time to redeem yourself before you present this gift. I found a list that um, had a, it was actually a long list, I think it was about 40 or 50 different things that mothers who had been um, asked gave these answers of some of the worst Mother's Day gifts they'd ever received. So for those of you who bail out of here after I read this list, we're all going to know, guys, what you're up to, right? Our kids, if you, uh, if you leave abruptly after I read this list, you're going to, uh, you have permission to go make this right, okay? So these are some of the items they received, and this was, just wasn't one mother that received this. Uh, it was multiple. And some of them, you're just, I don't even have to explain, you're just going to know right off the bat that this is a really bad idea. And the first one on my list is deodorant. I don't think I need to add anything right there. Um, uh, a fire extinguisher. Now, see, that seemed like a practical gift, guys. It really did. It, you, know, you were in Lowe's buying some tools or buying some grass seed, and you saw that fire extinguisher on sale, and you thought, you know, we need a fire extinguisher. What a great gift for, for mom. Uh, cleaning supplies, you know, like bleach, uh, Windex, bad idea. Now, this one doesn't make any sense at all, and I'm amazed that many people have gotten this, but a stick of French bread. Not really sure what that's about. Salad dressing, not a good idea. Popcorn, here's one for you. An ant farm. I cannot imagine that an ant farm would ever be a good idea for Mother's Day. So if that's on your list, or if you've already purchased it, keep your receipt. Now this one, folks, I'm going to tell you, in all the things I've ever considered as a, as a Mother's Day gift, this would have never been on my list because of the pain that I would have received after giving it. Hair dye. Oh, yeah, somebody actually did that. And if it was only one person, and if that one person is you, you need to repent, and we'll have a time at the end of the service for you to do that. I'm, I'm amazed you're still alive. Screwdrivers. Guys, if you need a new screwdriver, buy yourself a screwdriver. Don't buy your wife or your mother a screwdriver so that you can use it. Bad idea. A calculator and car parts. There's just a few to round that list. So if you've got an oil filter you're getting ready to give to your, to your mother, I would highly suggest you make a swing by the store before you go home. So this morning, we want to recognize all of our mothers. If you're a mother this morning, would you please stand? I know I have to coerce you to do this. Remain standing. Give them a round of applause. Don't sit. Don't sit. No, no. Stand back up. Stand back up. Stand back up. Because I got something I want to say to you. I want to say thank you. 
And I want to say thank you because of the impact that you're making and have been making for many years. For many of you, for some of you, you're maybe new parents this year. But I want to thank you for what you're instilling into your kids. Because it's through my mom that I really began to understand unconditional love. And when we read in the Bible about God's unconditional love for us, we, we think about all the sacrifices that you've made on our behalf. Before we even knew who we were and who you were, when we were crying out for food and our diapers to be changed, you were right there doing it at all hours of the night. And even all these many years later, if that phone rings and it's your child, you're going to drop everything you need to drop and make that your priority. So I want to look at each one of you and say thank you on behalf of those who've been the recipient of your unconditional love and your sacrifice, your perseverance, and your endurance. We are very, very grateful for all that you've given. And although sometimes we take you for granted, guilty. We take you for granted. We probably take you for granted here at the church and the way you serve here. And sometimes at homes we take you for granted. I want you to know that you're loved and you're appreciated. And we're grateful that you're part of this community and you're part of this church. Give them another round of applause, please, this morning. Second Samuel 22. So when I first surrendered to the call of ministry, there were lots of moments and times where I was kind of shocked. You kind of have this expectation about what ministry is going to be like, and then you, you kind of get on the other side of it, and you, you see things for what they really are, and sometimes it can be rather shocking. Kind of like when um, Dorothy and her friends were banking on the wizard, you know, getting them home and getting a new heart and getting courage. And they've been thinking that this wizard's got all that power, and they're in that hall on that particular day, and there's fire and there's loud noises, and, and all of a sudden the dog goes over and pulls the curtain back, and behind the curtain you see the real deal, right? There's a guy back there pulling levers. Well, there was a point in time, or several points in times in ministry, where I, I was kind of surprised. I want to share one with you. I think this might have been the second funeral that I ever had to do, and I was really scared. This was, I think this might have been the first funeral that I had to do by myself, where the senior pastor wasn't helping. and So I had to take care of all the details and the service order and all, and I was really nervous because there's a lot of places for me to make a huge mistake, and I wanted to serve this family well. So my chairman of deacons at the church I was serving, he was like the head guy over the funeral home who was taking care of the arrangements. So I went down just to kind of go back over everything with him to make sure that I'd done everything I needed to do because, honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. So I went down to meet with him, and while I was there, there was a team of guys working in the funeral home. And he was really busy. We were walking around, and at the same time, we're having a conversation but this, this team of construction people was working in the building, and they're, they're mounting security cameras all, all through the funeral home. So, so in the hallways, there's cameras. But what really got my attention is in the family rooms, you know, where you gather with the family, and you've got your loved one there, and they're, they're lying in wait for the family to come through, and maybe you're going to have the visitation. You've got the casket there, and it's open. I couldn't help but notice that these guys were mounting cameras in those rooms directly over where the casket would be. Now, I am by nature very curious about things. I'm always asking questions. That's just how God's wired me. And I could not help but ask why there would need to be a camera placed directly over the casket. Now, without being too coarse, the question is kind of obvious, wouldn't you think? I mean, what are you actually watching for at the casket, the person's deceased. I mean, 
there's not going to be anything to really see there, right? I mean, I couldn't figure it out. And, and Don, who was the funeral home director, he said, well, over the last several months, we've had several instances where it necessitates us to have these cameras in place. And, of course, I had to ask, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we had a fight breakout. He said, we had a fight breakout in the hallway uh, inside the family, and they were fighting in the hallway, and some of my guys got pulled in on, and it was just a mess. And then accusations began to fly, and he said, we need cameras so that we can kind of prove our side of the story. I said, okay, that makes sense, but you still haven't gotten to my one question. Why do you need a camera right over the casket? He said, well, they had a family very wealthy family. And the family was at war over the estate. And this particular gentleman in his, in his wishes when he was going to be buried, he wanted to be buried with a lot of jewelry on. He had a lot of expensive jewelry and he had lots of rings and lots of necklaces. And that was just one of his requests. And he was a wealthy man. And when you saw him, he had all the jewelry on. So he wanted to be buried or at least have the viewing where he had all of his jewelry on. And somebody came by the casket during the viewing and stole the jewelry off of the deceased man. Can we all just pause right there for a moment and go, you have got to be kidding me. Really? But here it gets even worse. The family accused the funeral home of stealing the guy's jewelry. That's what was necessitating having a camera over top of each of the caskets in each room. Now what this reveals to us is, and what I have learned over a few years of ministry now, is... When a funeral occurs, or a wedding occurs, or a family reunion occurs, all the stuff out of the family comes right up to the front. As a matter of fact, when I've done weddings, I've had either one part of the wedding party or the other come up to me and pull me off the side. I almost expect it sometimes. They pull me off the side and say, well, you know, Pastor, there is some tension in the family. This side of the family doesn't like that side of the family. They're not getting along. And I just want you to know that then maybe on the wedding day something might flame up, and would you be able to help us deal with that? Yay. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I'm trying to keep the wedding straight and keep straight in my mind what I'm going to say, but now I may have to be the mediator between a family that's at war with one another. But you know what I'm saying. At weddings, funerals, and those big events in life, all that stuff that you've tried to sweep under the rug, the rug gets pulled back. And as much as we try to hide it, and as much as we try to deal with it, as much as we try to shove it in the back closet and lock it, it's at those times in our lives where all that stuff just spills out and we do everything we can to manage it, to just get through. I, I know families that could not wait to get through the wedding. As a matter of fact, they could not even enjoy the wedding because there was, there was tension, such tension, that they were afraid something was going to blow up. And you know what one of their concerns is? That the pastor's going to see it. Well, let me just share something with you that may shock you. I got that stuff in my family too. I got all kinds of stuff in my family. And I've seen it flame up at funerals. I've seen it flame up at weddings. So I am in no different boat. It's not as though my family's got it all figured out just because I became a pastor. If anything, there's even more tension because I'm a pastor, right? As a matter of fact, in the Bible, you can't find a family anywhere in the Bible that's not broken. Let's just take the book of Genesis for a, for a moment. Just the first book of the Bible. What do we see about families in that first book? Well, we see right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve cast out of a garden because they were disobedient. And I don't think very much time passed before their two sons are at war with one another to the point where one kills the other. Well, what about Noah? 
I mean, Noah was a man of faith. Noah was the guy who built the ark under God's direction to save his family from a flood where God was going to judge the world. And, and Noah was faithful in doing all of that. And they, and they survived the flood, as God had promised. They land. They begin to rebuild society. And you know what Noah does? Uh, Noah gets drunk. He gets so drunk that his own kids have to figure out how to hide his own shame. Well, then we get down to Jacob and Esau. They were, they, were at, they were at strife and combat with one another, even in the wound. They come out and they grow up, and there is this constant battle between Jacob and Esau. And not only that, the parents favor one over the other. Move on ahead to Joseph. Joseph is going to be sold by his own brothers into slavery. They contemplated killing him for a while, but then they decided, you know, it'd probably be best if we just sell him into slavery. And just in the book of Genesis, we got broken family after broken family after broken family. And everyone sitting in this room, you've got stuff going on in your home, in your family. You've got closets full of stuff that you've locked off. So let's just, let's just level the playing field. And let's just all look around us here and realize that every single person in this room has a broken family. Can I get an amen right there? Because I can already see it on your face. You're thinking about that wedding, that funeral, and that family reunion you went to that blew up. Well, David has got his share of stuff going on. As a matter of fact, let's imagine for a moment that David's going to have a family reunion, right? The man after God's own heart. Let's, let's imagine that David's going to have a big old family reunion. Well, what kind of gossip is going to be shared at that family reunion. Well, you, you got to imagine that the first thing that's going to come up is the lady who walks in with David by the name of Bathsheba that you heard about last week. You remember that whole story, right? So this was the wife of Uriah, and, and David commits adultery with her, has a child, and even has her husband killed on the battlefield. It's kind of public knowledge at this point. Or, or, or maybe, maybe while they're in the room, they're going to bring up this incident with... Uh, Amnon, one of David's sons. Now, because we've got some kids in the service, I'm not going to get into any detail here, but you can read it for yourself. All I'm going to say is, is that Amnon took advantage of his own sister Tamar in a horrible way. And when that occurred, another son of David, Absalom, decides that Amnon has got to die. Brother for violating their own sister. I would imagine that that's causing some awkwardness in the room at David's family reunion. Well, you move ahead a little bit, and then this guy Absalom, David's own son, decides that he ought to be king. So he begins to turn David's own men against him. And, and, and Absalom begins to cause a coup inside David's kingdom to the point to where Absalom is declared king, and David, yes, the man after God's own heart, is ran out of the kingdom itself. And Absalom takes the kingdom by force. Eventually, Absalom dies. Now David's had two sons to die. Turn over to chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Just turn back a page. So after all of this heartbreak, after all of this pain, some of it is because of David's own decisions. Some of it is because of the kingdom that he's leading is broken, is full of broken people. There are people inside of his kingdom that are trying to undermine David, even his own son. David is an old man by the time we get to chapter 22, and he's looking back across his life, and he sees all of this. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. As if he hadn't, didn't have enough trouble, 
Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So not only all this other stuff, but they've got a famine. People are starving to death. There's not enough food to go around. And then, you, you know how it is, right? The, the, the trouble comes in waves. Well, here's another wave for you. Look at verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. Now, David had, had nearly destroyed the Philistines completely. They, they had been at war several times, and, and David had very, a lot of success under God's power and God's direction against the Philistines. And I believe at this point, David thought the Philistines were pretty well done for, but guess what? They show back up, and they get into war again. And there's some words that I want you to see right here in verse 15 of chapter 21. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. Look at these last four words. And David grew weary. David is spent. His, his old life has been nothing but turmoil. I mean, for the time that he spent running from Saul, for, from the time that he, that he worked trying to get the kingdom established on a unified Israel, to the time of rebuilding the city and bringing the Ark of the Covenant, it's been one thing after another, after another, after another. And then he makes the choice to pursue Bathsheba. And then things got astronomically worse. And here David is as an old man, and he's looking back, and, and he's just tired. Is there anybody here today who's just tired of the mess? Yeah, I can relate to that. Just tired. David, as an old man in chapter 22, is going to do something that is shocking. It's shocking because of how he responds. And how he responds, we're going to find some hope. Because here's the thing. There is hope. Because if David is a man after God's own heart, and, and uh, after God's own heart, and he has got all this brokenness in his life, then we may come to the conclusion that where is our hope then? I mean, if, if David is that close to God, and David has had to go through all of this, then how in the world is my family ever going to find any hope? Well, we're going to find it right here in chapter twenty-two. I want to give you, I want to give you three steps, three. Three items that I find that David reveals here. And this is a psalm that we're going to read here. This is a psalm of David. Psalm 18 is very, very similar. There's a little bit of difference. I think the difference is between chapter 22 and Psalm 18 is because Psalm 18 was meant to be used in corporate worship with the people of Israel. But what we find in chapter 22 is David just pouring out his heart before God. So chapter 22, verse 1. Let's see if we can find some hope for our families on this Mother's Day. And David spoke to the Lord. The words of this song. Now stop right there. So with all of David's brokenness, with all the pain, with all the bad choices, David has repented. He is, he is, still, he is still pursuing God. It's not as though he's turned away from God. We find in Psalm 51, after the incident with Bathsheba, that he prays that prayer of repentance. He knows what he's done. He knows he's done the wrong thing. I believe that God has forgiven him. I believe that God has restored him. But listen, God has not delivered him from the circumstances of the choices that he made. So often, so often when I've made a choice that was in direct opposition to God's will for my life, God would forgive me. He would restore me. But I had to live through the circumstances sometimes of my own foolishness. And, and David is living that out. Now, now, David at this moment could choose to do a lot of things. But you know what he chooses to do? He chooses to worship God. Now, now this psalm is not some kind of melancholy 
sad, sad psalm that he's going to offer to God. In other words, what you're going to see in this psalm is not David lamenting. You're not going to see David going, God, where are you in all this mess? How, why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your back on me? You're not going to find that in this psalm. Now, there are some other psalms of David where you kind of find that. You, you kind of find some psalms where David is just, seems like he's angry with God. He's just being honest with where he is. But in this psalm, at this moment in his life, what we find from David is something we don't normally find in our own pain and our own suffering. You know what it is? Praise and worship. I mean, there's not much in David's circumstances that, that would cause David to praise God, right? There's not much going on in David's life like it was earlier when they tucked the kingdom back, when David became king. Those were times of praise, but in this moment, no, he's looking back over his life and he sees nothing but pain and brokenness and he breaks out in song. And I want you to hear this song. The Lord, the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies, from the hand of Saul. So Saul, so David looks back and here's what he finds. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Of all the places that David could start, of all the, all the places he could have started in this prayer and this song to God, where does he start? He looks back over his life and he says, God, I see what you were doing. I see how all the way down through my life you have been a rock. You see, when David's circumstances were changing constantly, you know who the one rock steady thing he had in his life? His God and his creator. That, that God was not influenced by the circumstances of David's life. That, that God was right there for David every step of the way. So David says, God, you were my rock. When the world was shifting, when everything was changing, when my life was falling apart, you were the one rock steady thing I had in my life. David says, God, you were my fortress. There are going to be times where you just need reprieve from the mess. <laughs> Moms, you, you've probably said this before. I, I just need a timeout. <laughs> I just need a break. I see some moms shaking those heads right now. I not want to take note of that. Just need a break. David said, God, there were times in my life where I just, I, I just needed to get out of the mess for a while. In other words, I just needed to be somewhere where it was safe. And, and David says, you know what I found in God? I found God to be a fortress, impenetrable. I could run to him, and I could find safety and security there. When my world was falling apart, when the storms were blowing, when death was at my door, I could run to the fortress, my God, and there for just moments in time, I could find some relief. You want a time out? You'll find it with Him. Being with Him, being, being in a place with Him where He is your fortress. He says that God was His deliverer. There's going to be times when you face stuff where God's going to just step in and answer your prayer. He's just going to deliver you right out of that mess. There's been times in my life where there's no other explanation other than the fact that, that God turned the ties. He changed things. He delivered me out of stuff. There were times where I had to face something that I was worried to the core about it. 
so much so that I was losing sleep over it. I couldn't eat because I had to face this situation. And then when I finally have to face the situation, there's no situation at all. It's like God had been working on the other side of that, and God became my deliverer. David says, God, you've been my shield. Sometimes instead of delivering you, he just protects you. He just wraps his arms around you and shields you from the mess. Other times, he's the horn of my salvation, that idea of a horn of salvation. It, in Israelite culture, a horn meant power. When you saw paintings or when you saw statues and you saw animals, they had huge horns, and it was a symbol of power and strength. David says that God was the power of my salvation. He had more than enough power to deal with the stuff I was in. He became my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. So how are we going to get back to hope in our families? Well, first of all, you're going to have to trust God. You're going to have to trust Him. You're going to have to trust Him. David is saying here, as he looks back over his life, he says, God is trustworthy. That all along the journey, God intervened. He either protected me, or He delivered me, or He shielded me, or He, he invited me into His fortress so I could get a little break. But all along the line, all along my life, God has been faithful. Now why does David start there? Why does he start with, God is my rock? Because until you trust God, until you trust Him, which means to give Him the mess of your family, to give Him the mess of your marriage, to give Him the mess of what's going wrong in your home, until you trust Him with that, it's never going to change. Here's what I do. Here, here's, my, here's my course of action when trouble comes. I may be the only one, but hey, here it is. Trouble comes. The first thing I do is I take hold of that trouble because i got to fix it. Because I'm a fixer. That's what I do. I fix things, right? So I, so I take hold of this, and I make it mine, and I keep it close to my chest. And, and then I try to fix it. Well, that falls apart pretty quick. And then you know what I do? I worry about it. Did you know that worry is the opposite of faith and trust in God? I know, I know that's hard I'm saying it to myself just as much as I am you, but listen, if we trust God, then we've got to give it to Him. But yet we take it to ourselves, we hold on to it, then we worry about it. And here's the next step. When I worry about it, then I blame God for it. Yeah, I do that too. I blame God for the pain. I blame God for my own choices. I blame God for the stuff that I'm on. And God is saying, look, I wanted you to give that to me. I know what the problem is. I can deal with that problem, but you've got to give it to me. You know why we don't give it to him? Because we don't trust him. Now, we're good Christian folks, right? We don't like to say that out loud, but the fact of the matter is we've got a trust issue with God. We don't trust him because we don't think he's going to turn it out like we want him to turn it out. That he's not going to handle it the way we want it handled. So we take control and then we worry over it. And God says, you've got to trust me. David says, you've got to trust him to be your rock, your shield, your protector, your deliverer, your horn of salvation, your refuge and your fortress. Until you put your trust in God as a fortress and God as a protector, as God as a savior, you will always be taking control of your life and you will always be missing out on the joy and peace that he offers. It starts with trust. David says he's trustworthy. I call upon the Lord, verse 4. Who else are you going to call upon? Who, who have you been calling on? Whoever you're calling on in the midst of your trouble tells you who you really trust. David says, 
Since God is all of this, who am I going to call out to other than Him? So we've got to trust Him. God is greater than your problems. He's greater than your past. He's greater than the brokenness in your family. He's greater than all that stuff you swept under the rug hoping that nobody sees. He's greater than that stuff you've locked away in the heart, that closet in your heart. You know where that is, right? You, you, just like when somebody's going to come over to visit and you hadn't had time to clean the house and you stuff all that stuff in the closet. Well, in your heart there's a closet and you've stuffed all that stuff back and you've locked the door and you're saying, God, I got that. Please don't pay attention to that closet. There's nothing to see there. But God seems... God seems to want to keep going to that door and say, open this up. Let's deal with this stuff right here. You see, on the other side of that door is addictions. On the other side of that door is hurt. On the other side of that door is pain. On the other side of that door is stuff that you've gotten wrong. And God wants to deal with that. But we keep it locked away. And the reason we keep it locked away is because we don't trust Him. David now is going to get into his pain. Before he even gets into his pain, and we would imagine that he would have started with his pain in the psalm. But he talks about God being a rock first. Then look at verse 5. So we're going to trust him. Secondly, secondly, we're going to have to run to him with our pain. Verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale or the grave entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is poetry. And David reveals his heart through some beautiful words. And in this moment, David says, the yes, my God is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, but, but I'm broke. I'm hurting. I've got a lot of pain in my life. And let me describe what that pain looks like. He says, the waves of death encompassed me. You know, he uses some, some imagery here that it doesn't mean a lot to us, but it would have meant a lot to the people who heard it. The Israelites were a little nervous of the ocean and the seas. When they would see the ocean, they would see the waves. There was an unsettledness in the ocean. And the Israelite people would look at the ocean. They would not necessarily think that it's evil, per se, but they would, they would be very afraid that, that the ocean was a place of death and destruction and unsettledness. Storms and waves constantly bashing the, the sides of the shore. And the Israelite people were not wayfaring people because they were a little afraid. So, so David uses that imagery and he says, the waves of death encompass me. Listen, folks, have you ever been in a place in your life where it seems like wave after wave after wave of trouble just keeps beating you down? It's like about the time you get up, here comes another wave and it knocks you down. Have you ever been there? Sure you have. Bad parenting moment. Bad parenting moment. Jenna was about two years old. We were at the beach. Jenna's my adventure, adventurous one. And against my wife's uh, judgment, <laughs> I took her out into the ocean, probably a little too far. And uh, she told us, come back in. You're getting a little too far out. And I'm out there. She's having fun. I'm having fun. I'm holding her hands. You know how you do. You're holding her and picking her up over the waves. Been doing that for hours. Well, it was time to go back in, and we're walking, and she's right there. I mean, she's right to my left. You never turn your back on the ocean. I'm a mountain guy. I had to learn that, right? Don't turn your back on the ocean. We turned our back on the ocean. We're walking back out of the water, and we both get hit with a wave. I don't know what. It felt like a Mack truck. It hit me, throw my feet up over my head, and the first thing when I hit that sand, the first thing I thought of is not I'm going to drown. This is going to sound awful, but not even... What happened to Jenna? But my wife is going to kill me. <laughs> oh, that, was the, that literally was the first thought. 
So I, I get up, I've got sand and stuff coming out of places it ought not be in or out coming out of. I look around, I don't see Jenny anywhere. She had on a, she had on a flaming pink uh, bathing suit. I couldn't find her, I'm freaking. I look around, I finally see a little glimmer of pink. I went over and grabbed her, pulled her out. She is screaming. She's got snot coming out of everywhere. Oh, screaming like a banshee. And I got to carry this child back up to my wife. And the hardest thing, admit that, yes, dear, once again, you were right. Right? That's what David's talking about. You see, there's been a wave. There's been a wave of death hit his house. The son that he had with Bathsheba died. Another wave of Nathan coming and pointing his finger and saying to David, actually that wave was before, but he points his finger at David and said, you're the man. Another wave when, when Amnon, his own son, violates his own daughter, Tamar. Another wave when, when Absalom kills his own brother. Another wave when Absalom tries to take the kingdom away. Another wave when Absalom, another son, dies. Another wave when three years of famine hits. Another wave when the Philistines rise back up. And then David says, I'm tired. He says here, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. He, he says here that it's like destruction was pursuing him. It's like everywhere he turns, his life is falling apart. Can we not relate to David? Sure we can. And then listen to this phrase. He says, the cords of the grave entangle me. David says it's almost like there's ropes wrapped around my legs pulling me down into death. I have, I have I've ministered to families in moments where I could see that, that the family was so broken that it just felt like something in the spiritual realm was just pulling them down into darkness. David says that death had set a trap for him. The snares of death confronted me. David says, it seems like every direction I step, death is at my door. So what's David going to do? What are you going to do? Well, if we trust God, if, if, we, if we understand that, that, that God is that rock and that fortress and that shield and that savior and that deliverer and that refuge, then we got to run as fast as we can run to him. Notice what David does. Verse 7, in my distress, I called upon Oprah Winfrey. In my distress, I ran to my therapist. In my distress, I took a week-long vacation in the Bahamas. In my distress, I talked to everybody in my family trying to find some help. In my distress, I went to that six-pack. In my distress, I went and bought a shot of heroin. In my distress, I went and got some more Percocet. In my distress, I tried to drown it away with chemicals. No, David says, in the middle of my mess. Notice, David has not been delivered from all of this. David is still in the middle of it. His household is still raging. And David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord, who is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. I will call upon him in my distress. It reveals a lot about who you call upon when the stuff goes wrong. Who you running to? Whatever you're running to, that might be your God. Little G, God. 
If you're running to anything other than your rock and your deliverer and your fortress, can I just ask you how that's working out for you? I would certainly surmise it's not going well. So if we trust him, then we must run to him. And when we run to him, then we need to have a conversation with him. Verse 7, into my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. Notice how David repeats himself there. He says, I called out to God and then I called out to him. Where else is David going to run? Where else are you going to run? Lost friend, you've been, you've been rejecting the gospel for a long time. You have heard the gospel, but you keep rejecting the gospel because you've got something else as your God, and that's what you've been running to. And the idea of giving up that God, little g, for the one true God who created you and is calling you to his side, the idea of that scares you to death because why? You don't really trust him. And it's faith, believing, and repentance, which means that we give our life to him and we turn away from our old life. That is the key that brings us into the kingdom of God. So David calls out to him. Notice, it says, from his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. If we're not careful, we get into this idea of this mode of thinking that we call out to God, he's off running the universe. And, and, and I have, I've met people down through the years of discipling people one-on-one -on -one and walking with Christ one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or three. I found out that, that oftentimes we'll pray and not really believe that God hears. The reason I say that is because oftentimes people will be going through something and, and they'll say, look, Pastor, I'm praying about it. But they really don't believe that God is even hearing or even cares. But they're going through the motions of, of religiosity and religious practice because somebody told them that was important and they needed to pray. But they really deep down didn't believe that God even heard or possibly even cared. Now that describes you this morning. If that describes where you are, then let me, let me let you hear what David says here. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Now verse 8 and following is how David poetically describes God's response in that moment. Listen to these words. Then, in other words, after God hears... Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him the coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundation of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his breath and of his nostrils. David says, listen, I called out to God and as I look back, I see God being faithful in my life over and over again. But in the spiritual realm, let me poetically tell you what was happening. When God's children call out to him, God responds every single time and he will move mountains. He will part seas. He will stop everything to come to his children when they're in need. You know why he does that? Because he's a good father. He's a good father. That doesn't mean he's going to answer it just exactly the way you want it to. As a matter of fact, when David gets done with this song and this prayer, David's still got the mess in his family and in his life. He's still got the consequences. He's still got two dead sons. 
He's still got people talking. And he's at the end of his life. But David says that when we run to him and we trust him, that God always responds to his children. And then finally, if we're going to trust him and we're going to run to him, then we've got to call to him. So when we, when we run to him, we're going to have to have a conversation with him. We're going to have to talk with him. Verse 17. He sent from on high and he took me and he drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. David says, I put my trust in God. I ran to him with my problems. I expressed to him that I'm, I'm literally at death's door. God moved mountains and came after me and, and, and changed my situation. He delivered me. He saved me. He protected me. He put me into his fortress to give me a little bit of a time out. But God was there every step of the way because God will never, ever forsake you or leave you. Why would God do this? Why would he hear and answer your prayers? It's right here, verse 20. He brought me out into a broad place. When David was talking about these waves that were just overwhelming and that death was setting traps for him, he gives this imagery here and he also does in some of his other Psalms where David feels confined. Some of you may be claustrophobic. If you get into a tight place, you're ready to fight somebody, okay? If you get into a tight place or you get into a really tight crowd and you're kind of pinned in and you feel like you've lost control, you start hyperventilating and all you want to do is be out in the open. David says he felt like the waves were overwhelming, that he was drowning into death and God came along, heard his prayers and took him out of that claustrophobic tight space and put him in a nice big open field where he could finally catch his breath. Is that what you want this morning? Do you, want to, do you want to be in a place where you can finally live the life that Christ talked about? Turn over to Matthew 11. I want you to see what Jesus said about this. Matthew 11. It's, it's actually a prayer. He starts out praying at this moment. I want you to hear what Jesus says, and it's going to tie in very closely with what David is saying in 2 Samuel 22. But because we live in the new covenant, we, we live in this this place where putting our faith in Jesus restores us to our Creator. So whatever David was saying in the Old Testament before Jesus came, not only is it even more true in our lives now, but it is even more real now because Jesus has walked among us. That Jesus now lives inside of us. So listen to what Jesus says. Verse 25, chapter 11. He says, I thank you, Father. Notice that he's praying. He's talking to his Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jump down to verse 28. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When I see those words, when I get to those last words, I will give you rest, I have to hit the pause button right there because I need some rest. I'm not talking about a vacation. I'm not talking about a few weeks at the beach with my feet up. I'm talking about soul rest. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about that inner turmoil on the inside of me when I see the broken world that's in my home, in my family, all the stuff that's going on, the ways that I'm trying to serve you and the brokenness that we're living out together. There are times where I just need some soul rest. Jesus says, I, I look at your life. I see what's going on. And he says, come to me. Come to me. David says... 
I will call upon my Lord. And this is what Jesus says. He says, take my yoke upon you. Wait a minute. I don't know that I like that part. You know, for us living in our modern age, a yoke is something that you would put around an animal to team that animal up with another animal to pull a plow. That doesn't sound like rest, does it? Well, if you're only thinking about physical rest, then this doesn't work. But if you're talking about soul rest, if you're talking about spiritual rest, if you're talking about peace down deep in your soul, how can we put on a yoke and find peace? Well, here's how we do it. Or here's what we find out. Jesus says, notice it's my yoke. Not the world's yoke. Not, not the mess that you've tried to run to to get some peace in your life. I'm talking about you take my yoke upon you, then here it is. Learn from me. All right, so the imagery is this. In Jesus' day, if you had a young ox that you wanted to train to pull a plow, what you would do is you would team that young ox up with an older, gentle ox, and that young ox could learn how to do what an ox was supposed to do and pull a plow. You know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, hey, come put your head in the yoke with me. And I want you to learn from me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to understand what love is. I want you to understand what peace is. I want you to live out the mission that I've got for you. But you put your head in the yoke with me. And he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Go back to 2 Samuel. That first step of peace and joy is you surrendering your heart and life to Christ, putting your faith in Him. But beyond that, after you put your faith in Christ, you're still living in a broken world. There's going to be plenty of trouble after that. Everyone who's a Christ follower in this room can testify to the reality that on the other side of putting your faith in Jesus, there's still trouble. But here's the difference. Christ who now lives inside of you, you have placed your head in the yoke with Him and He will never leave you when it gets hard. He will never drop you on the wayside when you mess up. He, he will never just cast you aside because you got it wrong. He's going to walk this thing out with you and He says that I have begun a good work in you and I'm going to complete that work. David says this, he brought me out into a broad place, verse 20, chapter 22. He rescued me, and here it is. Here, you got to get this. Why would God answer? Why would God move? Why would God be a fortress? Why would God be a rock? Why would God be a shield and a savior to David? After all that he's done, after all the brokenness, after all the bad choices that David has made, why would not God just wipe his hands of David? Here it is, simply because he delighted in me. You've got to underline that in your Bible if you write your Bible. Did you know that God delights in you? Oh my goodness, that is mind-blowing. That, that when you were being knit together in your mother's womb, God was already involved in your life. Before you ever took your first breath, God delighted in you, loved you, has been calling to you and asking you to put your faith in Jesus and then after that to continue to trust Him and run to Him and have that conversation with God that you've been putting off for years. I don't know what that conversation is for you. I don't know what's locked back in the closet, but He does. You see, it's really easy for all of us to come here, put the mask on, play the part. 
If we run to God with that same mask on, God is immediately going to call you out. He's going to say, look, I know what's on the other side of that. Let's don't play religion here. Because you're my son, I'm your father. You're my daughter, I'm your father. We're not going to play games. We're going to deal with the stuff if you'll just trust me, if you'll come to me, if you'll run to me. And if we can finally have that discussion we've been needing to have for a long time, I'm telling you on the other side of this, it's peace for your soul. Aren't you about ready to give up on some of the stuff that you've been trying to fix? Aren't you about ready in the waves of the death that encompass you and the snares that have been set? Aren't you about ready to go in a direction where it's actually going to change and make a difference in your life? Now, God has the right to allow those circumstances to play themselves out. But here's the difference. And it was a difference for David. When David got up from this song, when he got done, and he said amen at the end of this song, or he wrapped it up, when he got to the end, he got up off of his knees, he walked out of his closet or wherever he was worshiping, and you know what he was facing? Two sons who've died.